if you've been with us this uh, summer, you'll know we've been going through the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are found really in two parts of the Old Testament. They're they're referred to throughout all the scriptures. They're found uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20. And then we'll pray together uh, a prayer related to the proclamation of God's word. So listen to this from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. This is God's word. Let's pray this prayer together from Psalm 85. Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. We've all, uh, at some point in our lives, uh, engaged in some sort of penance. I hope you know what I mean when I say that. Think about uh, maybe a time where you were at work and your spouse called you on the phone and you had a harsh word with your spouse. So on the way home, what do you do? You stop and you get flowers, hoping to kind of smooth things over. Or maybe you were the one that ate the last piece of cake in the refrigerator at night So the next morning, you decide to wake up and cook breakfast for everyone in your family. We've all engaged in those moments of penance, working our way back into someone's favor who we may have hurt or who we may have offended. And from time to time, we often do this with God or we think about God in these terms as well. You see, each person knows deep within them, whether they accept it or whether they deny it or suppress it, they all know within themselves that they have somehow offended a holy God. And so they feel that they need to somehow work their way back into God's favor. And so what they do is they turn to these Ten Commandments. If I do these things, then maybe I'll distract God enough and he'll forget the ways that I have displeased him or fallen short. 
But as we've seen, as we've looked at these Ten Commandments, as we've seen that this approach to the Ten Commandments is in some ways misunderstanding what their true purpose is really all about. So what do they really mean? What is the purpose of these commandments in the Scriptures? Well, rather than being a means of our salvation or a means for us to work our way back into God's favor, we discover instead that they are a grateful response. They're a grateful response of one who has been saved by God. We are not saved by keeping these commandments. That can only come through God's grace. So we are saved to them. They show us how God wants his rescued people to live lives of gratitude. And in many ways, they are surprisingly comprehensive. Even though they are just a few short words, they are surprisingly comprehensive. They speak deeply about how our relationship with God ought to be, what it ought to look like. And they speak deeply about how our relationship with each other ought to look like, how they should be characterized. And this week's commandment speaks to maybe the deepest and closest of all human relationships and its violation. It speaks to us about this idea of adultery. And whenever the Bible talks about adultery, it often talks about three types of adultery, or it talks about it in really three levels. Some are more obvious than others. The most obvious is committing physical adultery. If you're with us uh, just a few weeks ago when we, we looked at the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and one of the things that we talked about is, is the importance of families or how important families are to God. We talked about how many pressures there are in our current culture that often challenge families. We discussed how families are the context in which uh, persons are formed. They are the the real-life classrooms in which we first learn about God and learn about life. We discussed how families are really the the basic building block of society in which cities and, and communities and neighborhoods are built on. So families are incredibly important to God, and they should be important to us, God's people, as well. In fact, if you look in the book of Genesis, you see that God himself built the first family by presiding over, in many ways, the first wedding. Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You see, marriage is one of the first institutions that are given to us by God himself. And he designed marriages, he designed this commitment to be the context for love and for intimacy and for the bearing of children, and we ought to consider it just as sacred as God does. In fact, the Catholic Church, in an effort to to consider the sacredness of marriage, has even elevated it to the status of being a sacrament. 
It is one of the few places culturally where we still use the words vow and covenant. We don't really use those words a whole lot anymore, but we do when it comes to a marriage ceremony. A vow is a solemn promise that we bind ourselves to. A covenant means that we make these vows before God and before our spouse and before all of these witnesses. So we vow in a solemn context, in a solemn covenant, to commit ourselves wholly, completely to another person. One of my favorite uh, uh, verses that I've seen before uh, was quoted in ancient Irish weddings. They've been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in ancient Irish weddings, couples would say this to one another. They would say, we swear by peace and love to stand heart to heart and hand to hand, mark, O Spirit, and hear us now, confirming this our sacred vow. And so God, understanding and authoring the sacredness of this institution, makes very clear that adultery or the violation of this marriage is contrary to his will and his desire. You shall not commit adultery. See, adultery is, is tearing apart of the one flesh nature of marriage. It violates the vows that we make before God. It, it breaks that solemn covenant. It is a sin against the will and the desires of God, and it is a treason, one of the, the most heinous treasons that can happen within the context of someone we have committed ourselves to. Now, I've been in ministry long enough and I've been around churches long enough to know that adultery causes some of the greatest emotional pains that are imaginable. No matter how much our culture likes to downplay it or treat it very lightly, adultery is an emotional hurricane that leaves destruction in its wake. It deeply hurts spouses and it tears apart families. But physical adultery isn't the only type of adultery that is mentioned in the scriptures. There is, of course, physical adultery, but the scriptures also talk about an emotional adultery. And what we discussed last week when we looked uh, at the commandment last week is also true of this commandment here this week as well. We talked about how sin is not just a behavior. It is those outward acts, but it isn't just those outward acts that we do that rebel against God. Sin also includes the condition and the state of our hearts. What that means is that sin isn't just what we do. It's also what we say and what we think. So sin is a heart matter, and because of that, it includes everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. So Jesus, understanding that, says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, what Jesus does here is he, he defines lust as thought adultery. 
And so God's sexual ethic gets a little deeper here than we first realize when we look at this commandment. Uh, About seven or eight years ago, uh, I was uh, still a youth minister, and I was working at a church, and uh, the church was connected to a Christian school. And uh, I was asked by the Christian school uh, to come and and talk to uh, their eighth-grade boys uh, about lust and pornography and the challenges of that in our culture. It was a part of their health unit, and I'm guessing that the health teacher didn't want to go there, <laughs> didn't want to touch that subject matter, and they, and they asked me if I would be willing to do it, and I said, well, sure, I, I'd be willing to do it, and, and I guess it went well enough that they asked me to come back for several years uh, whenever they got to this health unit. It actually put me in an awkward position at one point, because every time I'd walk in the school, people would look at me and they say, hey, aren't you the lust and the pornography guy? And I had to be known by that at that school. But the first year I taught, I did all sorts of research on, on this topic and, and the thinking behind it. And one of the things that, that I discovered about it uh, is that the, the first exposure for most children to the nature of lust and pornography is around 11 years old now. And that was about seven or eight years ago. You can only imagine how much younger that has become. And so we all are presented with these temptations and realities of concerning lust every single day, and it starts at an incredibly young age. But we don't even have to be presented with the temptation in order for us to often struggle with the issues surrounding lust. The temptation, sure, is present in our culture And we can talk all day long about how our culture makes these things difficult and challenging. But we, at the end of the day, are the ones who are lusting in our hearts. We are the ones who are committing adultery with our thoughts. So when it comes to the lust, it's easy to get caught up in all the kind of do's and don'ts. And we could probably preach a whole sermon on the do's and don'ts that come uh, along with this topic. In fact, uh, I thought it was really interesting that the, the, the evangelical kind of culture of the internet uh, exploded this week because one popular author and, and speaker and pastor uh, went very public about how he believes certain Christians should not wor- uh, watch certain television shows that are on television now, and, and everybody exploded and went back and forth with all sorts of venom. And we can devolve into those sorts of discussions, but what is important for us to understand is that the idea of adultery, has to, we have to think of it beyond just our behavior. It relates to our heart as well. If we are thinking lustfully of another, we have committed adultery in our hearts. But if that wasn't enough, if those two layers of adultery are not enough, the Bible warns against another kind of adultery. It warns against spiritual adultery. I don't know if you've uh, read through your Old Testament recently, but you can, you'll find uh, in some of the minor prophets, you'll wind up at this book called Hosea. And Hosea, uh, it's easy to miss. Uh, it's it's kind of caught up in a lot of different other minor prophets, but Hosea is easily probably one of the most scandalous books in all of the Old Testament. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch that movie Pretty Woman that came out with Julia Roberts, and probably uh, for good reason. 
But the Bible has its own version of this story, and it is called the book of Hosea. What you find as you read these minor prophets is that God often uh, instructs his prophets to do very bizarre things, often very bizarre behaviors. And the point was that not only with their words were they to communicate God, but they were to do it in sometimes their lives, and, and they would illustrate that with their lives. And Hosea may have had one of those, the hardest of all illustrations that God called him to do. You see, God comes to Hosea, and he instructs him to go find a prostitute. The, the scripture's called the wife of whoredom. He, go, he has to go and find a prostitute from the streets and take her as his wife. And he does this. Her name is Gomer, the woman he discovers. He does, and she bears him three children, and each one of them get really bizarre names. And then after several years, what happens is Gomer abandons Hosea and returns to her life of prostitution. We don't know how Hosea felt. Maybe he felt relieved that she was now gone. But God comes to him shortly thereafter and tells Hosea, you are not done. Go and buy your wife back from her prostitution. So Hosea goes, he goes to the, to the slave trade of his day, and he buys back his wife with 15 shekels of silver and some goods. Now, why would God ask a prophet to do this? Why would he ask him to do this? Why would he make such a visceral and vivid picture for his people? Well, he tells us why in Hosea chapter 4. He says this, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they left their God to play the whore. You see, one of the most common illustrations that God uses to describe his relationship to his people is a marriage. God himself took a vow and he entered into a covenant with his people. He devoted himself to them and they were to be singularly devoted to him. And so, every time that they sin, every time that you and I sin, every time we rebel against God, any time we worship anything that is lesser than God, any time our devotion is half-hearted or divided, every time we rebel against God in thought, word, and deed, we commit spiritual adultery. See, we don't just break the first commandment, which prohibits the worshiping of lesser things. We give ourselves away to other things. We violate the most precious relationship that we have. We commit spiritual adultery. We, as God's people, violate our intimate relationship with him. So this commandment, this prohibition of adultery is much deeper than just physical, but it touches every part of our lives, our bodies, our hearts, our emotions, and our spirit. And in many ways, we all must conclude that we all, in some shape or form, are all adulterers. But lest we despair in that moment, 
This is where the message of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel shines through. Because think back to that story of Hosea and think back to the end where, where he needs to go to the slave trade and he has to buy his wife back. And he takes silver and goods and buys her back. The word used there is he redeems her. And what the gospel tells us is that Christ, our faithful husband, redeems us. He bought us back from our state of spiritual adultery and slavery. But to be bought back, for us to be bought back, would cost something much more than just a few pieces of silver. For Christ, it would cost him his life. And it was the cost that he freely paid so that he could be in relationship with you and with me. You see, in the gospel, God himself tenderly and intimately speaks these words to our souls. I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Friends, to be redeemed, to be restored, will cost you nothing. It is the gift of God's free grace. It is certainly not something that we deserved, but instead it is a gracious gift from a God that is committed, vowed, and covenanted to love you faithfully for all of eternity. And so, if you are God's own, if you are one of God's people, then in gratitude seek in every way to display the faithfulness of God for all to see. Make your marriages a display of faithfulness and singular devotion. Don't let lust gain a foothold in your heart or in your mind. Root out the idols, the lesser things that tend to woo your heart away from God. Seek to rid yourself of a divided heart and instead pursue singular devotion to God. Display in a very earthly and powerfully symbolic way for all the world to see the intimacy and devotion between God and his people. Let's pray.